Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla from downtown Los Angeles coming to you from the International Buddhist Meditation Center. This next podcast, this next edition of the Urban Dharma podcast is a talk I gave to the UCLA Buddhist Club on the differences between Theravada and Mahayana, Enlightenment and Nirvana, the Arahant and the Bodhisattva. When I started to study Buddhism, I was confused about those terms. I couldn't figure out if it were, they were the same or they were different, if one was better, if one was worse, which one I wanted to be. So after considerable reflection, you're about to hear my answer to all those questions. Hope you find it interesting, and most of all, I hope you find it useful. So with no further introduction, this is my talk to the UCLA Buddhist Club on Enlightenment versus Nirvana. So when I first started to study Buddhism, uh, my teacher was teaching uh, a form of Zen Buddhism, Mahayana tradition. And so I looked at all Buddhism as being Mahayana because I was new and I didn't really understand all the different kinds of Buddhism that they had available. But then I started to read some books and I started to see that what he was talking about is was like a later kind of Buddhism. And I was really interested, because I was a, a newbie, I was a beginner, I was really interested to find out what the Buddha said, you know, originally in India. Well, what did he say? Not so much what did they say in Japan or China or Korea or Tibet. But what did they say in India? And was that Mahayana Buddhism? Or was that something else? Are you okay? Okay. I think there might be one right over here. Yeah. And, and so I bought the first book I ever read uh, that dealt with the sutras, the talks of the Buddha, was called the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is a very famous book. You know, and uh, it was one of the oldest books in the Pali Canon. And it really made sense to me, even without commentary, even without a deep or, or, or even a superficial knowledge of Buddhism. I, it's just everything they said made perfect sense. So I said, okay, so now I wanted to explore what early Buddhism was. And I found out they called early Buddhism Theravada Buddhism. But I also found out that Mahayana Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism Hinayana Buddhism. And then I found out that because it was called Hinayana Buddhism, that was sort of a zinger. Because Hinayana Buddhism means the small vehicle, the selfish vehicle. And Mahayana Buddhism means the great vehicle, the inclusive vehicle. So I'm saying, ah, we have a little tension here between those early Buddhists and the later Buddhists, which is probably the reason they had later Buddhists, because they weren't too happy with the early Buddhists. So then I wanted to see, well, okay, so what did the Buddha say? And the Buddha said pretty much, you know, what you all know, he said. He talked about the four truths. He talked about the Eightfold Path. He talked about meditation. He talked about precept practice. He talked about nirvana. And then 
when I started to read about nirvana, I remember hearing in the Mahayana tradition that they talk about enlightenment. And then I remember that a lot of people seem to use both words as if they have the same meaning. And yet when I read about early Buddhists and I read about the later Buddhists, they seem to mean two different things. There seems to be a difference between enlightenment and nirvana. So I asked around. I said, well, what's the difference? And people would say, well, I don't think there is a difference. Or I don't know what the difference is. Or there is no difference. There's the same thing. But nobody was really clear about that. So being the type of person I am, I decided, decided to think about it myself. And say to myself, okay, Kusla, so how would you define nirvana if you were writing a book? And so I came up with nirvana is the end of suffering. And that seems to tie in pretty well with early Buddhism, the Theravada tradition. That seems to tie in to the goal of early Buddhism. But in later Buddhism, the Mahayana and the Vajrayana Buddhism, they didn't necessarily want to end suffering. They wanted to help other people end their suffering first. And then they would end their suffering. And they had something called a bodhisattva. Now, I went and I sort of looked for that word, bodhisattva, in early Buddhism. And I realized, after reading some of the Jataka tales, these are stories of the Buddha before he became enlightened or before he achieved nirvana, that they called him a bodhisattva. And so I put sort of two and two together and I said to myself, okay, well, if you're a bodhisattva, you haven't achieved nirvana yet. You're going to in the future. But if you're an arahant, and that's like the Buddhist saint from early Buddhism, then you have achieved nirvana. So I realized in early Buddhism, the ideal they were striving for was to become an arahant, one who has gone through the different stages and achieved nirvana. But they didn't call an arahant a Buddha. And I'm thinking, well, is there a difference between a Buddha and an arahant? Because they both achieved nirvana. So why wouldn't you call everybody who achieved nirvana a, a Buddha? So I continued to read, and I found out that you can only call a person a Buddha if they're the first one, you see. And once that first one is taken care of, then nobody else can be a Buddha then anybody who achieves nirvana is called an arahant. Now, the thing that makes a Buddha unique is the fact that he wasn't taught Buddhism. He or she will have discovered it on their own and achieved nirvana without a teacher. And they are able now to teach others how to achieve nirvana. And those are called Buddhas. And you can't have another Buddha in the world, on earth, until the teachings from Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, have ended. And they end when the last person who knows or practices Buddhism dies. And he takes that knowledge with him. And then on earth, there's no one else walking around who knows anything about Buddhism. And then the next Buddha comes down. And his name is Maitreya. We already know who he is. 
So I'm thinking, okay, so are there people who achieved nirvana without a teacher but can't talk about it and can't teach like the Buddha did? And can people become, uh, I shouldn't say become enlightened, but can people achieve nirvana who aren't Buddhists? Can anybody achieve nirvana? And in the early Buddhist tradition, they say yes. Anybody can achieve nirvana. And what they call them are silent Buddhas. These are people through sometimes chance or practice become fully enlightened, achieve nirvana, achieve nirvana, but they can't talk about it. They don't know how they did it. They just are different and they're not quite sure why and they can't really share it with anybody. So I'm thinking there are probably some people like that in the world right now who through practice or whatever, achieve nirvana, and they're just sort of like different from all of us, and yet they can't you know, share with us why that's the case. So now we have a Buddha, the top guy, and then we have the silent Buddha, which is anybody who achieves nirvana, and then we have the arahant, and he or she is a person who listen to the teachings of the Buddha and then practice those teachings and because of listening and because of practicing became or achieved nirvana. So that's an arahant. In the early Buddhist tradition there are four stages, four levels. The first level is a stream enterer. That means you've entered the stream to nirvana and you have uh, up to seven more lifetimes to go before you achieve nirvana. But you could achieve it in five lifetimes, too. And there are certain characteristics that they talk about to identify a stream enterer. Then there's a once returner. And this person only has to come back one more time as a human being. And they will become an arahant. They will achieve nirvana. And then there's a non-returner. And that person, when they die, will achieve nirvana and never have to come back again. And then there is the arahant who achieves nirvana while they're still alive. And that's what the Buddha did. But the Buddha was the first, so we call him the Buddha. So it's all about nirvana. There's nothing about enlightenment in early Buddhism. And when they talk about the Bodhisattva, they only talk about the Buddha before he achieved his nirvana, before he became the Buddha. But now, when I started to read early Buddhism, or pardon me, later Buddhism, the Mahayana tradition, everybody who's practicing Mahayana wants to be a Buddha. And I had read that you can only have one Buddha at a time until the teachings wear out, and the teachings are still alive after 2,500 years. So why would you want to be a Buddha? Ah, but then I kept reading. And I realized there were Buddhas everywhere. On all the solar system, all the planets, all the stars, there were Buddhas. They went so far as to say there is even a Buddha on a piece of dust that floats in the air. Those are called dust motes. And some people are reborn as a Buddha on that piece of dust for all the creatures on that dust who want to become enlightened. So they weren't talking about coming back to Earth to be a Buddha. They were just talking about being a Buddha any place. But, they said, before we receive our nirvana, before we receive our enlightenment, we want everybody else to be enlightened first. And so they are called bodhisattvas 
rather than arahants. They choose to be enlightened and then they choose to reject nirvana until all other sentient beings have achieved nirvana or are enlightened as well. So now I had to come up with a definition for enlightenment. What is enlightenment? For me, and if anybody went to the Heart Sutra talk, they may have talked about this. For me, enlightenment is the wisdom of emptiness. The wisdom of emptiness. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to become a bodhisattva as opposed to achieving nirvana? This is how it seems to work for me. When a person is on the path of the bodhisattva, their goal is to become empty. Empty of what? Empty of independent existence. They want the direct experience, which comes and happens in meditation, the direct experience of being interconnected and interdependent with all things, all the time. They want that experience. And if you listen to my talk a couple weeks ago on samatha meditation, there is a point in your meditation where your body and yourself dissolve into the universe and you are no longer separate and unique. You are now interconnected and interdependent. And when you have that experience, I think this happens. I think when you go deep into meditation or... In some cases, people have been sweeping and a rock has hit a wooden fence and the sound of the rock hitting the wooden fence triggered their enlightenment, triggered their experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. When they had that enlightenment experience, they saw clearly that they were interconnected and interdependent with all things. And that if, in fact, there was one person who was hungry, they were also hungry at some level. If there was one person who was homeless, they, too, were homeless at some level because they were interconnected and interdependent with all things. And if there was one person dying, they, too, were dying. A part of them was dying. And when that happened, to be a bit poetic, I think, their heart opened up and broke and would not close. And all they saw in everybody was themselves. They were no longer looking at different people. They were simply looking at their own reflection in all these different people. And a Christian one time told me, I want to be the kind of Christian who can look at everybody and see Christ. Wow, can you imagine if you were a Christian and everybody you saw looked like Christ and Christ was hungry, what would you do? You'd want to feed him, huh? And Christ was homeless, what would you want to do? You'd want to find him a place of shelter. And Christ was dying, what would you want to do? So, can you imagine looking and seeing Christ in everybody? Can you imagine seeing yourself in everybody? And now this person's hungry and you're hungry. So you feed them and you're satisfied? This person's unhappy. You make them happy. And because of that, now you're happy. Your happiness, your success is dependent on the happiness and success of others. Wow. That's so cool. But what does that do? How does that change your life? That means you never, ever will be able to hide your head in the sand again. 
you never ever will be able to turn your back from the suffering and the discomfort and the disease in the world. That you are drawn into it. You have been drafted into the army of bodhisattvas, marching through the world, ending the suffering. Not creating the suffering, ending the suffering. That's the path of the bodhisattva. That's the experience of enlightenment, I think. That's how it transforms you. That's why you wait to achieve your nirvana until all other humans have achieved their nirvana. Because they are you. There is no one first or second if everyone is you. There's no front of the line or end of the line if everyone is you. Well, okay. As I read, as I thought, as I put this little model together, I'm looking at the Mahayana Buddhist talking about being a Bodhisattva. I'm looking at the Theravada Buddhist talking about being an Arahant. I see the later Buddhists calling the early Buddhists selfish. And I'm thinking, isn't that just typically human? You know, We always find the differences in each other. And most of the time, we overlook the similarities. Is one better? I don't think so. Is one in reaction to the other? I think so. I have often thought that the Mahayana Buddhists were the Protestants. And the Theravada Buddhists were the Catholics. And the Theravada Buddhists had this monk and nun lineage that went back directly to the Buddha. And they were the ones who were doing the religious practice. They were the ones who were reading and memorizing. They were the ones who weren't working, but were dependent on the lay people for their support so they could practice. And then when the lay people came to the temples, they would share with them their understanding, their insights. So the lay people could afford to have a job and a car and children and all the things that lay people want to have, but all the things that take a whole lot of time and energy to have. And so the monks and nuns created this whole subculture. And their goal, their job, was simply to spend as much time as possible with the Dharma on their own personal practice to deepen their insights and to increase their compassion. But you know what happened? I think when the sutras started to be written down, lay people had more access to the teachings of the Buddha without going through the monks and nuns. When people started to become more literate and could actually read a ballot initiative, they could pick up a sutra and understand what the Buddha said without the commentary of the monk or the nun. If they had their own practice, and as their practice deepened, so did their understanding. The early Buddhists were always dependent on the lay people for their survival. They always lived close to villages. They would go in every morning or every afternoon and beg for food. The only food they ate was food that was offered to them from lay people. In their rules, they are not allowed to keep any food overnight in their house or their kuti or underneath the tree or in the cave. They are not allowed to keep any food overnight. That forces them to have contact with lay people every day. And when you have contact with lay people every day, if you're a monastic, it sort of keeps you honest. Now, one of my favorite lines, and please don't take this in 
in a wrong way. One of my favorite lines came from a Tibetan monk. And he was reflecting on living with lay people. In, in his center, he has lay people all the time, and even some lay people live at the center. He said, you know, when you live with lay people, it's like living with thorns. And, of course, all the monastics laughed because we thought it was funny. I'm sure lay people would, might take offense to that. But I live with 30 lay people. And you know what? Uh, they ignore me. They uh, uh, don't take, you know, um, they don't look at me as anything other than somebody else who lives there. You know, uh, some people uh, think I could be a better monk. I could do things in a different way, a better way. And they're more than happy to tell me all the different ways I could improve. When you're in a monastic community, things are a bit different. There's a hierarchy. Uh, there are rules of order that you go have to follow. But in a lay community, it's, you know, every man and woman for themselves. I find that very helpful for myself. If I go and give a presentation in Simi Valley and everybody says, oh, Kusla, you're so wonderful, it might go right to my head. Everybody wants to hug you. They want to invite you back. And then you go back to your center, your community where you live, and everybody ignores you. They're the first ones to condemn you and the last ones to congratulate you. And that adds a certain balance. So I think the Buddha was correct in staying connected to lay people on a daily basis. Because he kept the monks honest, kept the nuns honest. In the Mahayana tradition, though, they, they, they changed a couple things. They said, well, it's really inconvenient to keep going into all these villages and towns all the time. Let's have some, some nice monasteries on the side of a mountain where we won't be bothered by people. We can have our own community. But we're going to have to stop eating meat. You see, in the early Buddhist tradition, they ate meat. They ate what was offered to them. They couldn't refuse any gift. So if the family had been eating chicken, they gave the monks chicken, and the monks ate chicken. And if the family had been eating pork, they gave the monks pork, and they ate pork. But now, when the monks and nuns decided to move away from the city, away from the towns, and not be dependent on the lay people and create their own community, they said, well, we're going to have to grow our own food. And I'm thinking this probably went through their head. We can't assign a monk or a nun to go out and slaughter the chickens. Because the first precept we take is not to take life, not to kill. So we're going to have to be vegetarians. You know, no more chicken than fish for us. No more beef for us. We're going to be vegetarians. That way we can live apart from the lay community and go into even deeper training and not be distracted. So if you go to certain Asian countries and go to certain monasteries, they are way out in the Tulis, you know. And you sort of have to have an invitation to get in because you knock on the door and nobody comes to answer the door. <laughs> you know? They're busy. They're working hard. They're practicing. They want to achieve enlightenment, you know. So I, I see that as an interesting difference, too. Not better or worse, but just different. But one of the things I think that really created this reform movement is lay people, because they could read and practice without the assistance of monks and nuns, had much more power. Much more power over the way the Dharma was disseminated. And if you go to a large temple, there's always a board of directors. And they're all lay people. And they're directing the running of the monastery. They don't direct the religious 
you know, traditions of the monastery. That's what the monks and nuns do. But the board of directors, they oftentimes have a lawyer, an accountant, maybe some doctors and some dentists, keep all the monks and nuns healthy and going, practicing. But they make the big decisions, and then they do fundraising, this lay organization, so the monks and nuns don't have to go out and keep begging for money, because it's unseemly to see monks and nuns begging for money. In the old days, of course, they couldn't beg for money, could they? They just had to beg for food, because that food kept them alive. But now, we like money, because money can be you know, translated into food and comfort. And I always like to see the monks driving Mercedes Benzes. You know, because a lot of these really poor temples have some, you know, fairly rich lay people, and they want to give the monks really good things. And so why not give the monks a Mercedes to drive around in? You know, because our monks are special, and we want them to be comfortable. And when I see a little monk driving a big Mercedes, I always have to smile, because I know they didn't buy it. Somebody gave it to them, and they feel that they have to use it now, because it was a gift. <laughs> so, so there they go, you know. So we're challenged, too, as monastics, to keep equanimity, to have a balance in mind. And when people offer us gifts, we accept them. You know, people give me a lot of things. I live in a very small room, and people say, have you read this book yet, Kustla? Here, I've got an extra copy. Here's the book. So I've got these stacks of books, you know. And I I can't read all of them, because there's so many books that are good to read, and I just don't have enough days in my life left to read all the books that I want to read. So I sort of, you know, re-gift them, if you will. And people come to the center, and I give them books, you know. And they say, why, you have a lot of books? And I say, yes, I'm blessed with far too many books. Please take some with you, you know. So we can keep the Dharma going, but it has changed dramatically, hasn't it? Since the beginning, when these monks and nuns would go begging every day to support themselves, to moving out into the forest, away from the city, so they wouldn't be distracted by the lay people, to now having podcasts and websites and whole libraries online that you can download for free. When I look at the two traditions, I see enlightenment as being different than nirvana. I see the ideal of the bodhisattva as being different from that of the arahant. But I also see both those traditions, along with the Tibetan tradition, Vajrayana, all those traditions had the same father. They just had different mothers. And every Buddhist when you get down to what they're practicing and what they understand to be true, sees it the same way, whether they're Theravada, Mahayana, or Vajrayana. But some people want to be bodhisattvas, and I encourage them to do that. Some people want to be arahants, I encourage them to do that. Some people just want to practice a little bit and have a good life, I encourage them to do that. We get to choose what path we want to take. And living in Los Angeles, there are some of the best teachers in the world living here. Some of the biggest and best temples and centers and monasteries right in this area that we have access to. So as a Buddhist, we're really lucky to be living in 2005 and more than lucky to be living in a giant urban area like L.A. With great weather, mind you. Because a lot of the great teachers from Asia like this weather and they come here to live and don't want to move. And isn't that cool? When they don't want to leave and go back to Chicago because it's too cold, they want to stay in L.A. Because we get to access them. We get to ask them questions. We get to practice with them. We get to go to their temples and monasteries and retreat centers. We get to see how monastics hold themselves, how they respond to questions, 
how they carry themselves. We get to see monastics, and that is a link to the Buddha. We're going to have Dharma teachers. Granted, we're going to have a lot of Dharma teachers, but we can't ever get rid of the monastics. Because if we get rid of the monastics, we lose the link to the Buddha. So the Catholic tradition is similar in that way to us. They have priests and nuns. They have this monastic tradition that goes back many decades, many centuries, just like we do. The Dharma teachers, I've always thought, are more like the Protestants. They're like ministers and pastors, and, and it's their job. They're hired by the church to be the pastor, and they have kids sometimes, and, you know, nice car. And, and that's the, just like Dharma teachers do. But when I go visit the monastics, when I go visit the Catholics, I, I feel comfortable because these are men and women who have renounced the world to a certain extent, and they are now more focused on practicing. You know? I hope that made sense to you, and I hope that was useful to you, and I hope you can see now that there are two different ways of looking at Buddhism, the Mahayana way, the reform movement, and the Theravada, the more orthodox approach. They both work, they're both useful, and everyone who achieves enlightenment eventually will achieve nirvana as well. Nirvana is the end goal for both traditions. Every path in Buddhism ends in nirvana. Well, that's it. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. For more information on Buddhism, please visit urbandharma.org. Many, many pages of articles and photos and even a lot of free ebooks you can download. For more information on me, visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. Well, until we see each other again, until the next podcast, please be happy, peaceful, and most of all, free from suffering. <laughs>